0: If you watch movies, you're familiar with this ploy on the part of a director. There's a certain amount of action. There's a certain amount of drama. Often it is intense. And then comes on a little sign on the screen that says, Two weeks earlier. It gives you the backdrop of what's been going on that you would not understand what's going on without it. And once you see the backdrop... Ah, it all falls into place. Well, that's what we'll need to do today regarding 1 Kings chapter 11 that we started looking at last week. You recall that last week, we looked, last two weeks I could just say, we looked at the life of Solomon. First his meteoric rise to fame because God blessed him as he said he would. But then Solomon letting his wives turn his heart to idolatry and then his, his abysmal fall. Now God is going to say something in 1 Kings 11 that we read last week but we'll need to read again. And then we're going to go back a bit not some weeks earlier, but some years earlier, to get the background of it. This background that we'll spend the whole time together on in this sermon will be important for all the rest of any passage we go to in the book of 1 Kings. So, from 1 Kings chapter 11, starting at verse 9, after Solomon has drifted from God despite all of God's favor to him. Now the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although God had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I command you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, that is out of 12, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, let's go back a number of years to Solomon's father, King David, the best king that Israel ever had, and read what God said to King David. Our passage this morning now and the rest of the time will be from the book of Second Samuel, which comes just before First Kings, chapter 7. Starting verse one, Second Samuel, chapter seven, starting with verse one.
1: Second Samuel seven, verse one. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, "Here I am living in a palace of cedar." While the ark of God remains in a tent Nathan replied to the king Whatever you have in mind Go ahead and do it For the Lord is with you That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan
0: hmm. I want to say right up front here that a great deal of what I'm going to say today comes from two writers in particular that I found unusually helpful, Dale Ralph Davis and Palmer Robertson, just so you'll know that. Their content often is from, the content is often from them, not always. Sometimes the outline points are, and sometimes even their very words. Well, here's the deal. Right away we see in this little paragraph about the life of David that common sense can sometimes lead godly leaders down the wrong path. Here you can almost picture the prophet Nathan and King David that we read. This is after David is settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest. Picture them up on the roof, perhaps. Picture them, perhaps, celebrating, clinking glasses, proposing toasts to all the good that has happened and to the way that things have settled down now and everything is safe and good. My goodness, my goodness, Hadn't God gone out with their armies? God had given them tremendous battlefield victories over King Saul, who had tried to kill David. He had given them success over the Philistines that are now in check, and the Jebusites that had occupied Jerusalem had now been conquered, and Jerusalem now became David's capital right in the center of the country rather than the way down south where he had been before. So it's strategically located to pull all 12 tribes together. And also, there's peace now. There's peace enough that David had the time and the energy to build a palace for himself. And not just an ordinary palace, a cedar palace. Cedar was quite expensive in those days particularly. It had to be imported all the way from Lebanon. From Lebanon, it had to be dragged all the way to the coast and then floated down the coast of the Mediterranean and then brought onto land and then taken far up into the hills of Judea to Jerusalem. It cost forever. We don't know if the palace was entirely wood or if it means that it was of stone blocks, but it was paneled with wood. But in any case, it was a luxury to do this. So, here you have peace, here you have luxury, here you have a palace for David. And also, they're, they're proposing toast to each other because the ark of God has been brought into um, Jerusalem. Now, don't picture Noah's ark. Picture, as many of you know, the box about this big that had the Ten Commandments in it. That above it had wings of cherubim spreading over it. And God's throne, he said, was on top of that ark. And so here, God's presence was now in Jerusalem. You may recall that during David's lifetime, the Israelites went to war with the Philistines and the Philistines captured the Ark and it was in pagan territory for a long time. But God sent plagues to the Philistines and the Philistines sent it back. And now that Ark is back where God's people are. And so David is saying, you know, we are God's people and he's with his ark, and he's here with us, and I'm the king, all is good. Now, David says to Nathan the prophet, as they reminisce over all the good happened to their country, but think of it, David said, here I am in a palace of cedar, and God's ark is still in a tent in Jerusalem. It would seem logical, it would seem right, it only makes sense, for me to build a magnificent temple for God. Wouldn't that be appropriate? And the prophet Nathan says, absolutely, go for it. But human reason is not always what's best, especially if it is human reason, even by godly people without praying first. It's possible for leaders to just rest on their former experiences with God, on the collective wisdom of their years of leading and so forth, to make decisions that are big and that seem in line with God's plan, and they're not sinful. And God does use the logic of leaders, but here the Holy Spirit reserves the right to change what we plan at any time. And so now... We only see part of the picture. David only saw part of the picture. But God is seeing a much larger picture. And so that night we read that God appeared to Nathan. Now from 2 Samuel 7 again, verse 5, 6,
1: and 7. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says.
0: Well, here, you see what's happening here. David suggests what seems to me and probably to you like a good thing. Build a magnificent palace, temple for God. And yet, God says through the prophet, Nathan, no. In verse five, God says through the prophet, are you the one to build a house for me? Or more literally, like the ESV says, will you build a house for me? That's an admirable path, but God says, I have gone for a long time gladly living without a temple. He says, I haven't dwelt anywhere. That is, he means I haven't settled down anywhere. I haven't chosen some prime real estate with a mountainside view near pine trees and a lake, just the perfect place for a temple. He said, ever since the Israelites left Egypt hundreds of years ago and wandered through the desert, I have wandered with them. I've been moving from place to place whenever they would move. Well, one might say, I've lived a life of a vagabond. And thus, I, Jehovah, have lived in a tent. Because the Israelites have lived in tents. Isn't that remarkable that God would say that? And in David's day, even though the people now were in settled in houses, God's ark was still in a tent. Now, why did God, instead of wanting a temple, want to wander with his people in the desert? And why was he okay with being in a mere tent? Well, the reason is because of his relationship with his people who he had chosen back then, which is the same relationship as he, as he has with you as a Christian. It's this. God did not send the Israelites out of Egypt. You guys go, and when you get to Canaan, I'll meet you there, and I'll help you come in. No, no, no. He says, i Brought the Israelites out of Egypt. I led them through the wilderness. I have been in Canaan with them in several locations because if you follow the books that have led up to now, the tent of the Lord where he was worshipped has been in several different locations. And as um, one writer said, the Israelites have been a pilgrim people and so God became a pilgrim God. He has shared the rigors of the journey with him. What God is highlighting here is an attribute of his that we rarely think about and that if we do think about, it sometimes causes us to scratch our head. And that is, he's speaking about the humility of God. God is grand and glorious and he insists upon his honor. And yet God bends low to his people in a way that other gods simply would not do. God has stooped to bear their hardships with them as they traveled through the desert. He has condescended to them. He's been among them despite his majesty. So if you think about it, this God said, listen, your people have been in the land of Israel now for hundreds of years in Canaan. During that period in the early days there was no king like David. There were only the times of the judges. And if you've ever read through the book it comes before First Kings and First Samuel, Second Samuel. If you have ever read the book of Judges, you remember it was a horrific time where everybody was afraid to go outdoors because there were always marauders and roving bands of cutthroats and people attacking the Israelites all the time, God would raise up a, a military judge to help them in this spot or help them in that spot, but never was there a whole king over all of them. And in verse 7 of our text, God says, did I ever say to any of those rulers back then, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so in verse uh, 12 and 13, God is going to say, not until your son's day, David, not until Solomon comes on the throne, will I have a temple. What God is saying remarkably is, I can wait to have a temple built for me. This is astounding, folks. And it's a picture of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, many years later, when he says, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and weighed down, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. I bend down to humans at their level. And in this sense, God was saying that he is very much not like the other gods of the ancient Near East. Pagan kings used to build temples in order to receive the favor of their God. God puts that on his head and does exactly the opposite. Let me give you some examples. There are many. I'm just going to pull two out of many, as I say. Pharaoh Thutmose III, who lived long before this time, there's a monument that on it is uh, a victory hymn. It's a victory hymn with words of the god Amun-Ra. And here's what it says. Amun-Ra, the great god of this pharaoh, acknowledges that Thutmose had, quote, erected me a dwelling place, a temple. He acknowledges that Thutmose had outstripped the other kings in building his monuments. And so, as a result, here is what the god Amun-Ra says to Thutmose: I have established you upon the throne of Horus for millions of years that you might lead the living for eternity. You get what he's saying? You have built me a temple and monuments, and therefore I will respond by putting you on the throne, and you'll rule for eternity. Or take a king of Babylonia, Nabonidus, who lived some time after this. Nabonidus, we read in the text of Babylonia, that the moon god Sin, S-I-N, I'm sorry, I don't know if you pronounce it Sin or Sin, the moon god, I'll say Sin, appeared to him and said, I want you to rebuild the temple of Sin. And if you do, I will hand over to you all your enemies. And as I say, there are many other references that go like this. But Yahweh, Jehovah, the real God, is not like that. Instead, we read that God has a humility about him. But not only that, there is something else. 2 Samuel 7 now, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11.
1: Now then... Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you.
0: Now here is God saying, no, no, it's not that you did me a favor so we'll have tit for tat and I will do you a favor. No, no, he reminds David how he, Jehovah, sought out David and gave him grace before David even thought of building a temple for him. So in verses 8 to 9, he reminds David of his past kindness to him. He says, David, I took you from being a shepherd. I took you from the pasture The palace, as it were. I took you from shepherding sheep to shepherding an entire nation as king. I have stayed beside you everywhere. I've mowed down all your enemies that you went to battle with, and all this has been me giving to you, not you giving to me. All this good I've done for you is totally apart from any temple building on your part. Do you see how God is emphasizing that He's not only humble but that he is a God of kindness and grace. And as we elaborate on this, let me say to those of you who may be new to Christianity or may be thinking about Christianity or maybe even have formerly been involved in Christianity and have left it because something has disillusioned you, Many people tend to think of the God of the Bible simply as one who gives laws, which he does, as one who gives commands, which he does, as one who will one day judge the world, which he will. But God stresses that amidst all his holiness and amidst all his law giving, he is a kind and gracious God who initiates kindness to people who don't deserve it, in order to win them and woo them, not just to demand their allegiance. And so, he rehearses all the grace that he's given to David and the kindness in the past, and then he promises, I'm going to give you more grace in the future. We'll read that in the second half of verse 9 and the second half of verse 11. The second half of verse 9 puts it this way. Now, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. You hear that? Not only have I made you king, but I'm going to make you a king that all the other kings of the earth are going to go, whoa, he's some guy. People are going to speak your name all over the world in hushed tones. You'll be like the top kings when there's a summit photo of all the kings standing together talking you're going to be in the middle of the photo. You'll be famous and admired and respected. Then in verse 11, he promises more future grace. He says, near, um, uh, right in the middle of it, he says, I will also give you rest from your enemies. That is, God has already subdued some serious, powerful enemies by David's hand and David's sword. We saw that in slides in the past weeks, where surrounding Israel, were all these hostile nations But they eventually submitted to David and to his son Solomon because David was allowed to conquer them. He's saying, I've already subdued many of your enemies, but enemies are always a threat. So if they rise up, I will subdue them again. I will crush them underfoot and they will bow. They will not attend your funeral. You will attend their funerals. That's how these wars will go. And even more so, As God lays out the grace he has shown to David and the grace he will show to David, his promise gets even larger. This promise is not just about David's personal rule, as long as you are a king, I'm going to really bless you, but it's about something in the future far greater than just David. God promises to build David a dynasty and no ordinary dynasty. We see this if we contrast verse 5. With verse 11. In verse 5, God says, David, I appreciate you wanting to build me a house of cedar, but will you build a house for me? Verse 11, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh Himself will build a house for you. You see what God's doing? He's using a play on words. You know how a house, the word house, can mean, say, a building, a residence, somewhere for people to live. If it's a God's house, it's, it's usually a temple, of course. But the word house can also mean a family that lives in that house. You may remember the famous verse from the book of Joshua where Joshua said, If you people want to worship Baal, go ahead. But as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. He doesn't mean the brick and mortar. What he means is, I and my wife and my children, and if I'm still around their children, we're going to worship Jehovah. They are my house. We might say a household. A house is a building. A house is a family. And sometimes the word house, and this is probably the most frequent use in the Bible, means a royal family down through the centuries. A dynasty. This king whose son reigns, whose daughter becomes queen, whose son becomes king, and so forth on down. You may recall that the current king of England is from the, quote, house of Windsor, as was his mother, Elizabeth. Their last name was Windsor, and this house is a family, is a dynasty that has continued down in English royalty for a long time now. God promises David that his dynasty will keep on going, In other words, as as, uh, Dale Ralph Davis said, Yahweh will be the builder and the house will be David's, not vice versa. Do you see where all this is going so far? God is setting up to the greatest king of Israel, one of the early kings, and saying that my relationship with you is primarily one where I have shown you immense mercy and I'm going to show you immense mercy. Jehovah initiates his relationship with David by heaping on him all kinds of wonderful things, and David receives and merely responds, as it were. Now our passage presents something that goes beyond this even. Our passage explains, and here's where it really gets closer to the meat of things, why has God given David such kindness, and why will God give David such kindness? And the way we see it is what happens between verse 9 and verse 11. We, we read in verse 9 already that God is going to bless you in certain ways. And we read in verse 11, he's going to give you rest for your enemies. But in between verse 9 and 11 is the meat of the sandwich. Verse 10, the reason for his grace. And the reason for God's grace is something far David than merely David the person. It's a far bigger picture. Here it goes, Verse 10. And I will provide a place that is through your dynasty. I will provide a place for my people, Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. The idea is this. He's talking about, in the past, the Israelites suffered a lot. Now, they traveled through the wilderness just before they entered Canaan. They were attacked by other people. Since they entered the land of Canaan for some 400 years, Aramaeans and Moabites and Philistines and other people were constantly attacking them and making their lives miserable. And he says, now, David, I've given you the ability to be a great warrior. You have ended the terror. I'm going to continue to defeat any enemies. But the reason for it all is so that the people I have chosen, my people, will have a homeland. And that homeland will be safe. And so, David, I have chosen you and your descendants in order to be kings. And often in the Bible, a king is referred to as the country's shield. The reason is he's the top military commander. He knows what to do in warfare. He leads his nation to victory. And also the king is often called in the Bible a horn. Now that used to puzzle me as I was growing up. The horn. What, is it a trumpet? Or is it a, is it a saxophone? What exactly does it mean? Well, when he calls the king a horn, he's talking about a ferocious animal. Picture some wildebeest. Picture some wild ox with enormous horns pointed at the end And any creature that gets near him, he's going to gore him to death and nobody will touch this creature because he's so tough. God has made the kings of Israel, starting with David, a shield, a horn, a military powerhouse for the sake of his people so that his people will be safe. God has established David's dynasty for the Israelites. If you were living then, we'd say he established it for you. And he has established it for you. Now, Not for David's own sake. He says, I want to plant Israel in verse 10. And what he means by that is, picture this. Picture a tender young plant. It's vulnerable to the elements. It needs watering. It needs shielding if there's too much drought and whatnot. And so somebody goes down and carefully digs it up, carefully places this little plant, waters it every day, shields it if it's too hot, too long. He says, I want to plant my people in Israel I want them to have a home of their own. I want them to grow and flourish where they will no longer be harassed. In other words, God is saying the leaders of his people, in this case David and his descendants, are not his primary concern. His rank-and-file people are his primary concern and interest. This is astounding, and it's so different from all the gods that lived elsewhere, allegedly, in David's time. But there's an even bigger promise than this. The promise now we'll read in verses 12 to 17.
1: Starting at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation.
0: It is this paragraph that becomes, in the view of many, Certainly the most important paragraph in 1 and 2 Samuel, and according to many people, and I I tend to agree with it, very possibly the most important paragraph in the Old Testament. This is God saying, for the sake of my people, I'm going to make you king. I have already blessed you. I will bless you in the future. So that they can be planted in the land, so that you can be a shield and a horn to them. And not only that, David, but I'm going to do this through your dynasty, and his dynasty is going to last forever. Your dynasty will endure anything that threatens it. Now, the idea is that God has committed to his people forever through the instrumentality of these great kings who are going to be his representatives on earth. And here, I'm following exactly the outline of Dale Ralph Davis to close us because it was so helpful to me. Here's what he's saying, in essence, in this passage. Three things. One, death will not annul this promise of an eternal dynasty. Two, sin cannot destroy this promise of an eternal dynasty for my people. Three, time will not exhaust this promise. Let's consider them one by one because they relate to God's people, Israel, and you must know that they relate to you as well. First, God says death will not annul this promise of an eternal dynasty. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, you rest with your fathers. That's that's a Bible speak for you go into the grave, you die. When your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so forth. Solomon, the son of David, God says, will build the temple that I'm not letting you build right now. I will raise up your offspring. The word offspring is just the word for seed. If you read the old King James, I will raise up your seed. The word seed can be singular or plural. It can refer to Solomon the individual, or it can refer to you don't scatter seeds, you scatter seed. It could refer to all David's descendants. And it seems like what he's saying is, I'm going to raise up your descendant Solomon, but also your descendants. And it's clear that God had in mind, not just Solomon in this passage, that he's going to bless, but all the kings that would come in the line of David. For instance, later on in the book of Psalms, Psalm 89 The psalmist is reflecting on 2 Samuel 7 and God's promise to David. And here's what he says. Notice the plurals. God said, quote, about the future king, about the king, if his sons, plural, forsake my law and don't follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees, I will punish their sin with a rod and their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love away. You get the idea then. Solomon and Solomon and David's successors are promised by God that when any one of them dies, God's promise continues. The death of any king will not cancel God's plan for the welfare of his people. One of the reasons that's so good to know is that many of you have lived long enough to experience a person who was very helpful to you spiritually eventually dies. Maybe a friend, maybe a grandmother Maybe a favorite uh, speaker or favorite author that has helped you greatly. And now you read with shock this person has fallen over and, and they're buried. And it feels like the world is maybe just a little bit more scary to you. God has said death will not annul this promise for him to carry the people's welfare down to the generations. But it's not just that death won't. God also says, secondly, that sin will not annul this promise of God through the descendants of David as kings. If God's promises to bless Israel through their kings depended on human faithfulness, those promises, as someone has said, would be doomed right from the start. God says in our passage, any descendant of David who strays from God's command, yes, God will discipline him, he will chasten him, but he will never do so in a way that totally removes God's commitment to the descendants of David to rule Israel for their benefit. An individual king may perish, like Saul perished because of his rebellion against God, but the line of kings, the line of their protectors, never will perish. And so in verse 15, verse 15 uses the word take away, it's a single verb in Hebrew, uses it three times and says, it'll never happen. But my covenant love, I will never take away from your descendant as I took it away from Saul, whom I took away from before you. This is illustrated, I think, by the fact that God said with his first king, Solomon, I won't take my love even from him as an individual when he sins. He's showing what God is going to do with the whole dynasty. I will not abandon this dynasty even when they sin against me. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis uses the analogy. He says, we might put it this way. He's using the analogy when God played on words and said, you want to build a house for me? I will build a house, a dynasty for you. He says, sin can bring disaster on any current resident of David's house, but sin cannot abolish the house itself, the dynasty of David. This is good to know. For instance, When you have read an author or listened to a speaker who has greatly helped you as a Christian and then that speaker turns away from the Christian faith and you think, oh my goodness, were all those things he said lies? Were all those things she wrote just nonsense? No, no. God says sin will not stop. God's commitment to keep sending his people, the kingly leaders they need, forever. And most importantly, you know, sin can't destroy it. Time will not exhaust this promise of God to give good kings to his people. The promise is forever. In verse 13 and in verse 16, if you take those two verses together, three times God uses the word forever. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of Solomon's kingdom forever. In verse 16, he says, David, David, your house, your dynasty and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, of course, if you've read through the Old Testament, you're probably thinking, well oh, my goodness, didn't a lot of those kings really crash and burn? And eventually didn't they crash and burn so badly that God sent them into exile and leveled Jerusalem through the Babylonians? Oh yes, years past kings came and went. Many of them disobeyed God and totally failed, as we'll see in 1 Kings. Eventually, the kings of Israel and Judah failed so consistently that Jerusalem was leveled by foreigners, all the people were taken into captivity, and the king himself was taken into captivity far to the east, into Babylonia. Well, doesn't that mean that this prophecy failed then? Well, during that time when Israel was declining in sin, and when they were in exile, God sent prophets. And while we could quote several dozen, perhaps, let me just quote one or two. The prophet Amos predicted way into the future, even after all the troubles that would come, Amos 9-11, quote, in that day, in the future, he prophesies, I will restore David's fallen tent, his fallen dynasty. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 and following says, The Israelites will live many days without a king, but afterwards they will return and seek the Lord their God and will seek David their king in the last days. My goodness. Almost six centuries After the Israelite kings so sinned that they were taken into captivity and Jerusalem fell. Almost six centuries after the last king in the line of David that history recorded, there was a tax collector in Judea. He lived in the time of the Romans. He was hated by his fellow Jews for collaborating with the Romans, but eventually he heard the preaching of Jesus of Nazareth and he was so astounded that he became a follower of Jesus. He took notes of all the things Jesus said, and he wrote one of the four Gospels. His name was Matthew, and he opens his Gospel with these words, Matthew 1, 1. This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Jesus, at the end of his life, stood before Pilate, and we read in John 18, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am a king. That king rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he reigns in heaven now over the universe. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, he said, just before he left. He oversees everything. God the Father has said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is that son of David who is a king. God will never abandon the idea of a safe home for his people where he will plant them overseen by a king who is a shield and a horn. He will never abandon the idea of a safe home for them until he brings them to the new Jerusalem in eternity, a city that is so safe that the book of Revelation says the gates can be left wide open 24-7. On the new Jerusalem, we read, On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And we read in that same final book of the Bible that on the day Jesus returns a second time, we read, And there are loud voices in heaven which say, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Whatever you are going through, whatever sins people around you have done that have disappointed you, whatever sins the leader of your church or your county or town or your country have committed, God will not leave you if you were one of his people, a follower of Jesus Christ. The king is on the throne. We can't always see how it's working, but he is working an intricate plan. And one day he will return in glory and you will see that plan. And God will plant you eternally in the safety of Jerusalem, where the gates will never need to be shut. We're going to celebrate that person right now in the Lord's Supper. Would you guys who are serving, please come forward. King David was able to destroy the enemy of God's people in those days by wielding a sword and a spear. But your king and savior has destroyed your enemies of sin, Satan, death, and hell, not by wielding a spear, but by himself being pierced with a spear. He turns it totally upside down. God Almighty, humble in the form of a human man, shedding his blood in order that you might be planted safely in heaven. We read that his body was treated like this bread. And now he says, think about me. Believe in me. Lean on me. Trust in me. And today, one of the ways we do that is if you are a Christian in Jesus Christ and want to proclaim it to the people sitting near you, as this bread comes around, you will take it and we'll eat it together as a sign that you believe that he is your King and Savior and Lord. Perhaps some of you may upon occasion visit the place of worship of someone from another religion. Maybe you have visited a synagogue. Or maybe you have even visited a a, a temple of something else in order to observe how people do things. You might do that. But if they have certain rituals that say you are a follower of that religion, you will, of course, as a Christian, decline. Because you do not want to make a statement, I believe these things. If you are still thinking about Jesus Christ, if you're still toying with Christianity and and processing it and thinking it through, or if you know you're not yet a Christian, then please, as it goes by, just out of respect to Christ and Christianity and the people here, just respectfully let the plate go by because this is for people who are publicly proclaiming their faith in him. Lord Jesus, take this bread, please, and use it to strengthen our faith. Amen. Amen.
2: Please turn in your hymnal to number 254. I'll invite you to reflect on the lyrics of this hymn as they are sung by the quartet.
0: The gods and kings of the ancient Near East routinely boasted upon their monuments that they put these people to death or killed those folks or slaughtered the military of this country. They would never conceive of what Jesus the king could do to stand and explain with joy how he instead was privileged and glad to be killed by his enemies because his plan is so different and it's exactly the opposite of the world. We read that instead of him shedding other people's blood, that he first wanted to shed his blood. And it speaks to the humility of the great King Jesus that he wants you to do something so personal, so intimate. That's the best word I can think of. That you would drink from this fruit of the vine as pictorial of your trusting in his blood. He is so intimate with us that we drink this and through faith we believe in him and he becomes a part of us as it were. Not that we become little gods Not that we become a deity, but that he now lives his life through us and in us. This is a marvelous thought. Think about this then as the wine is passed representing the blood of Jesus Christ and we'll take it all together.
2: sweet must be the pleasure you find in your eternal son for long before you made the heavens both you and he rejoiced as one and long before you formed the angels Before you made the day and night, Jesus exalted in your presence, and he was all of your delight. Love you've shown to rebels, that you would send your son so dear into this world of grief and trouble to bring unworthy sinners
3: near.
2: We'll never fathom how. Supply me, offer me, to rescue those who had disdained you, to watch your dear son
3: suffering. have made
0: us one what a privilege drink of it just before our closing I'd like to highlight something that's in the bulletin that's quite important Sorry, I just lost the page. Give me one second. A lot of pages in these bulletins, aren't they? <laughs> On Sunday, February 25, in this morning worship service, we will have baptisms. This baptism is for people who are old enough to believe and profess their faith, whether you're an adult or a teenager or a child, but has, have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The idea is this. This particular time around, I think, will be the only time we are asking only for those who are over age 16. And here is the reason. Over the years, we have seen the need when elders or pastors interview a child or an early teenager about their faith to have some training for those children beforehand. So that in that interview, they would be well-versed in the understanding the gospel. There have been a number of times over the years where all the pastors here have experienced where uh, parents come and say, I, our child would like to give a profession of faith. We know the child's a Christian. We hear this child pray at, at um, during family devotions, and we think it's a good thing. But when we would interview the child, they are not able to express adequately what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We're not looking for certain key vocabulary uh, that a kid must rise to an adult level, but there needs to be at least a bare minimum understanding of how to express what the gospel is that I have come to believe. And so we are now going to start, for anyone age 16 or younger, we're going to ask that you attend five classes They last just an hour or a little less before evening prayer. We're going to ask that a child or early teenager come with at least one of your parents. And over these five weeks, we'll cover the basics of the gospel as clearly as we can so that your profession then can be intelligent and confident. So what will happen is we will start those classes on Sunday, April 7th. And they will go through into may fifth from four forty five to five forty five in the evening, and then this summer, when we have what used to be called our church picnic, our, our celebration of faith in the early in the spring in June, I believe, then um, you can have the time where you give your profession of faith. so let me be clear again on february twenty fifth anyone aged over sixteen is welcome to profess their faith, you can get an application either online or in the back. It's on page 15 of your bulletin to get the, um, uh, to get the inf- 16 of your bulletin. 15 and 16 look a lot alike when you're not wearing glasses, you know. And, um, and you can get that if you're 16 or under, starting age, April, starting April 7th to come to these classes. That information is in your bulletin. Would you hear God's benediction now? Mm. May the King of the universe, who has shed his blood for you, may the humble God on his throne in heaven, who condescended to us, may the one who is meek and lowly of heart, give rest to your souls, peace to your heart, and courage to your that he will plant you and care for you. The grace of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with every true believer in this room. Amen.